Hello and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn podcast, the podcast where I, along with a colorful cast of characters, aka co-hosts, aka friends that I roped into doing this, aka fellow book and movie nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. A couple of warnings real fast. Yes, there will be some barnyard language. Yes, we will do all the spoiler things. These books and movies have probably been out for a while. Some of them are a little bit new, but still, we want to be able to talk in depth about the endings. So if you haven't watched or listened, proceed with caution. You can listen to all of our past episodes if you go to kmmamedia.com. One last thing, if you want to support the show, of course, there's Patreon and buy us a coffee. Or you can do the best thing of all, rate and review us and tell your friends to listen. The more listens we get, the better I feel, the more likely I am to keep making shows. Okay, that about sums up the intro. Thank you once again for joining us on today's episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. It's Pages and Popcorn. It's Pages and Popcorn. It's Pages and Popcorn. It's Pages and Popcorn. First we read the book. Yeah, yeah. Then it's movie time. Yeah, yeah. Now it's time to talk. Yeah, yeah. And you know we're feeling fine. Yeah, yeah. Cause it's pages and popcorn. It's pages and popcorn. Oh, yeah. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Today, Matthew and I will be talking about The Dig, a novel based on true events by John Preston, as well as The Dig, the movie that came out in 2021, which is a British drama film directed by Simon Stone based on the novel that I just mentioned, The Dig. Can you dig it? We can. Maybe. We are going to talk about the book and the movie, the changes, and the archaeological importance of what the movie and the book were about. That's why Matthew's here, because he is an archaeologist. Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> okay. So before we get into a discussion, I'm going to do a recap of sorts. First, we have the book, the fictional recreation of the famed Sutton Who Dig. It follows three months of intense activity, locals fought outsiders, professionals thwarted amateurs. There was love. There was rivalry. As the war loomed ever closer, engraved gold peeks through the soil, and all the characters in this book search for answers in the buried treasure. So says the book, but uh, I don't know if I would agree with that estimation. So here's my actual official recap. The book is broken into sections. We have our prologue, which is Basil, it's June 1939. He's working on a dig somewhere and he's found something and it's very exciting. Then we have Edith. This is the section from April to May of 1939. Edith Pretty is a widow well into middle age with a young son named Robert and a big ass parcel of land in England. On her land are mounds and she wants them excavated before war breaks out. It is 1939 and World War II is on the horizon. She enlists the help of a local freelance archaeologist excavator named Basil, who's on loan from the local museum, and he agrees. Also, she has some weird dreams, and maybe some of the servants are misbehaving. But whatever, we never really come back to any of that. I guess it doesn't matter. Then we have the section that's Basil, May to June of 1939. 
Basil gets to work on the first mound, but there's not much to find. Eventually, he finds some stuff in the mounds, and then we catch up with the prologue, and what he's found turns out to be the remains of a very large ship that has been towed inland and used as part of a burial. This is very exciting. Of course, other more well-to-do archaeologists and museum and historical folks want to get involved, and Basil is demoted because he is just a common freelance archaeologist. Also, he has a wife who's a bit much, but she visits him, and our author just sort of drops this in and then moves on, so I will also follow suit. Basil also randomly goes to a spiritualist meeting at a church where a medium is talking to the dead. Then we switch points of view. Now we have the point of view of Peggy, and it's July of 1939. Peggy is a newly married archaeologist whose husband is one of the most revered archaeologists that I referenced before, and... um. Well, he used to be her teacher also, and they're on their honeymoon, and they're tapped to come and be part of this dig. And of course, she's tapped to come along because she's trained. Well, no, they tell her she's small because she's a woman. They give up on their honeymoon. They join the dig, and she's the one who finds the first bit of gold in the dirt. By the way, at one point, she forgets to lock the bathroom door, and her husband walks in on her while she's taking a bath, and he gives her a lot of grief about it, and it's very scandalous, and I'm sure we're going to talk about their relationship. Anyway, they're at a hotel and they're working hard on the dig and then her husband is called away and she keeps working. There's a sherry party hosted by Edith to showcase a bit of all of the finds. And this is a point of contention for some of the other archaeologists. I mean, they don't really want to share. They're not really happy about publicity. There's an ongoing turf war. But Peggy isn't really involved in all of this. She does have a slight flirtation with Edith's nephew who is visiting. And there is a whole bit about nightingales. Then Edith, in August 1939, there's an inquest to determine who all the treasures belong to. No surprise, it comes down to if the person or persons who placed the items into the ground ever intended to return to them. Obviously, this is not the case. Therefore, the items don't belong to the crown. Therefore, they belong to the owner of the land, in this case, Mrs. Edith Pretty and her heirs. Also, Edith is no longer going to the medium that she had been visiting secretly because she's trying to move past the death of her husband. Also, also, her maid has left her. Yep, okay. Then we go to Basil for August through September of 1939. Basil finds out that she's going to donate the items to the British Museum, and he builds her a bomb shelter. Then we skip ahead. Now we have Robert, Edith's son. It's 1965, and he's inherited the land, but he's never really been there or done anything with it. Now he's playing catch-up with all the old names and faces, and we find out that Peggy divorced her husband. Most everyone else has died. Oh, and Robert's lost roller skate was mixed in with all the treasures, and it's finally been returned to him the end so archaeologists were engaged in a turf war <laughs> was that an intentional uh joke there yes i always okay. i always say yes so that was the book and then in 2021 they made a movie the movie stars carrie mulligan ralph fines lily james johnny flynn ben chaplin ken stole archie barnes and monica dolan had a limited release in January of 2021, and then it became a Netflix streaming movie, which is where we watched it. In 1939, the Suffolk land order, Edith Pretty, hires local self-taught archaeologist excavator Basil Brown to tackle the large burial mounds on her rural estate in Sutton Hoo near Woodbridge. At first, she offers him some the same money that he is getting paid by the Ipswich Museum, but he says it's not enough, so she ups her offer, and he agrees. His former employers try to unsuccessfully to persuade him to work on a Roman site that they're dealing with right then that they say is way more important. 
But he's like, no, I'm, I'm going to work here. She's paying me. And uh, you kind of get the vibe that they didn't always treat him very well. And he's kind of happy to be somewhere where he is treated with a little bit more respect. Working with assistance from the estate, Basil slowly excavates the more promising of the mounds. One day, a trench collapses in on him, but they dig him out in time. Meanwhile, he spends so much more time with Edith, who's the widow, and her young son, Robert, becoming sort of like a father figure. He's finding common interest in archaeology and astronomy. However, he does not become unfaithful to his wife. We do see that they are an amicable couple. His wife does visit him. She supports his job as excavator, despite that being a very low wage and not very prestigious job. And Edith struggles with her health. She's warned by her doctor to avoid stress. She's basically got some pretty serious heart issues. Brown is astonished to uncover iron rivets from a ship, suggesting that it's the burial site of someone of tremendous distinction, such as a king. Prominent local archaeologist James Reed Moore attempts to join the dig, but is rebuffed. Edith instead hires her cousin Rory to join the crew. News of the discovery soon spreads, and Cambridge archaeologist Charles Phillips arrives. He declares the site to be of national importance, and he takes over. As World War II approaches, Phillips brings in a large team, including Peggy, who uncovers proof that it is, in fact, an Anglo-Saxon origin, not Vikings like was originally thought. Brown is demoted to only keep the site in order, and at first he quits and is like, I don't want to do it if I have to do that. And then Robert runs away from home, and Brown decides to go back because his wife is like, yo, you have to finish what you started. And okay, so now they're all working on it, and he's going to try to be okay with not being in charge. Brown discovers a small gold coin of late antiquity, and Phillips declares this site is of major historical significance. Again, Philip wants to send all the artifacts to the British Museum, but Edith is concerned about those war raids coming to London. And also, uh, by the way, it's her right to not send the stuff away. An inquest finding confirms that she is indeed the owner of the ship and the priceless treasures. She despairs as her health continues to decline. She's basically going to die, and it's very sad. Peggy, by the way, neglected by her husband, Stuart, starts a romance with Rory, neglected by her husband, paid a lot of attention to by Rory. Also, her husband seems to be paying a lot of attention to some of the other men on the crew. <laughs> Anyways, Rory is going to be a RAF soldier, and that's very point of contention and sadness and tension. Also, there's a plane crash at one point. Eh, we'll talk about it. Edith decides to donate the Sutton Hoo treasures to the British Museum. She requests that Brown be given recognition in his work. The film ends with Brown and his co-workers replacing the Earth over the ship to preserve it as the war has officially started. And as the end credits roll, it explains that Edith died in 1942. The treasure was hidden in the London Underground during the war, and then it was first exhibited without any mention of Basil Brown nine years after her death. And only recently was Brown given full credit for his contributions, and his name is now displayed permanently alongside Pretty's at the British Museum. So those of you who follow me on TikTok, which obviously you don't, you don't have to do, but if you do, you will see that I posted a video right after I finished reading this book, and I was like, God, I hope the movie's better than this book because I really, I know I'm skipping way to the end here, but this book had issues for me, like from the writing style issues. And it's in also from the plot, but it's hard to say the plot had a problem because I know it was based on quote unquote true events. And so you can't begrudge real life not being like a novel. 
Except well, they took a lot of liberties, though. <laughs> and that's, I think, where I get bothered because the liberties they took are weird. So there are some big ones, and I know we'll talk about, but I'm going to start with some of the little ones first. The novel is written as a not novel. It's written like here are these sections of time and we've got these points of view. There are details there that make it seem like it was somebody's diary, but it's not written in like the first person, dear diary, today I did this and today I did that. But it seems like somebody read a diary and then translated it into the third person point of view. Okay. You know what it made me think of is the way that Raymond Chandler writes, where it's the person who's experiencing it is telling you everything that they're experiencing, but without the smartassery of Raymond Chandler, and it was broken up from multiple points of view doing that. Right. And so some of it is interesting, and some of it, there are these threads that get started, but never really manifest or fit or, or go further for okay and i have to i knew it was based on a true story but i knew that there was poetic license taken and the first section of edith at one point like she's up in the middle of the night and she's walking around and she's thinking about ghosts and she's thinking about her dead husband and like the fact that these graves you know potential graves are out there on their land and it really felt like, oh, this book could very easily become like a like a ghost story. Like she might start seeing things. There might be like magical stuff in in these mounds. Of course, that's not that's not what happens. But but it almost leads you to think that that might be where it's going. It doesn't go there. And then also, Edith is like I want because she's wandering around. She goes into this room that's not used anymore in her house, and she can tell that people have been laying on this bed. And so she tells her, you know, butler, who has some kind of a, a lower back injury that she that we, we hear about for some reason. And she tells him, make sure the servants stay out of that room because that room should be off limits. And he gets all kind of flustered about it. OK, so then I'm like, oh, there might be some kind of intrigue. Are the are the servants sleeping together? Is there somebody like what's going on here? But no, um, the only time that anything is is remotely connected maybe connected is that her maid quits at the end and and just, i can't tell you why because we don't know but her maid leaves and edith is like oh oh okay la 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 she doesn't put connections together so was the maid sleeping with somebody was it the butler the butler was old and i this is this is like not totally non-consequential to the story of of the archaeological digs it doesn't really add to the ambiance of anything and i'm trying to figure out why is it here because there's stuff in this book that you could read as like class issues basil is this you know self-taught didn't go to college you know he's but but he's incredibly smart but he's looked down upon because he doesn't have the official education even though he has tons of experience and you've got these snooty guys you know who are are you know posturing and and territorial and stuff therefore haha ha, ha. edith herself is is of one particular class and like the the workers are another and the burial itself is of a king not a commoner i don't but i but there's I, definitely a class issue at work here and it's kind of multi-layered because edith is from the upper classes mm -hmm. the archaeologists would be considered pretty solidly middle class and Basil would be considered working class, at sure. least as in real life, it was way messier than this. Um, right. You know, the archaeologists, in reality, they worked with Basil. He, he was, based on everything I read, pretty well respected. 
Right. I mean, and that's and but, not even getting into what is right. historically accurate. Now, I'm just talking that, yes, there's class issues. So is the servant stuff there to highlight more of that? Because it didn't. It just felt like it right. had gotten shoehorned in as if the author forgot to to go back and and finish those threads. Yeah, it, it definitely felt that way. And it didn't seem it, like it would have been fine if it had clearly fed into some of the themes of the book. Yes. There's a lot of things in the book that frankly just felt kind of half-baked to me uh, mm -hmm. thematically. You know, it's on the eve of war. We know as people who are living 80 years after the fact that the war did come, that it was pretty bad, but the characters are hoping it won't. But in the film, I think they did a really good job of having the war loom over everything. In the book, it seemed, at least to me, like they kept mentioning the war because, oh, right, and there's the war impending. We'd better bring that up again. But it never quite felt like it was hanging over everything the way that I think the author intended it to. Yes, I agree. And and I and I feel like, again, there were elements that could have been fleshed out. Mm -hmm. Edith is a widow. She's one type of woman character. She's got this thing about the spiritualist. She's very drawn into that because she misses her husband. She's sad. She's much older and she has a very young child. This is the mother character. Then we have Basil's wife, who is also like kind of, I, you know, I'm going to say long suffering wife, right? You know, she's kind of there to be like the helpmate, the supporter of her husband. Her entire personality is that she supports and loves her husband. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a woman and those are like the proper, the proper women. Okay. The wifely matronly aspect can keep them into that kind of place. Then we have Peggy who is a young bride <laughs> has a, has a flirtation with with Rory, cousin Rory, he was a nephew in the book and then a, a cousin in the film and actually didn't exist at all. But we'll talk about that more in a minute anyways. And so she's got this flirtation. She's got like this weird dynamic with her husband, who's much older than her, who was her teacher. She's important. But, you know, like, are we saying something about women and their their freedom to to learn and to be intellectual equals with men like is there something here and then the other woman character that we have is the servant who maybe gets pregnant maybe from sleeping on that bed with some other ser so like there could be a discussion here about how women's roles were changing between the wars there could be you know a message here or themes here about women's empowerment and education and breaking apart from the the rigid roles that society has put us in you know edith being such an older mother and all of these but no no it's just yeah. kind of all lazily kind of placed in there with no real thought or connective tissue and it was like, very yeah. frustrating like i say it comes off as very half-baked yeah which, which is unfortunate because the writer took a lot of liberties with reality in writing this book so why not take the liberties to make it you know, better. if you're going to insert these things carry them through have like you don't have yes. to have the story of the maid conclude but we at least have to understand how it's related to everything else right. what's the author trying to tell us and even to have edith's response to it because we don't she just kind of gets told and then she's like you know like we don't get her emotions we're not in people's emotions very much in the book mm -hmm. we're kind of told what they're doing and the actions they're taking and the words that they're saying but we're not really getting told how they feel about things and they're very british and understated and they don't tell us how they feel and they're not acting in a way that tells us what's going on internally to them and so 
I, I found it really hard to connect to anybody in this book. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, after I read it, I, well, actually, while I was reading it, I told you I was having a really hard time getting into it. And the reason is the archaeology part it w- was actually pretty well done by and large. They got some things wrong and they got the importance of this find wrong. So, but as far as how you do field work, they got that pretty right. They did a lot of good there, but that's my day job. I don't want to read about my day job. <laughs> and then you've got stuff going on with Edith, which could have been interesting if it had been better developed. I mean, the spiritualist movement had had a strong dip after World War One, but then prior to World War II and during World War II, it picked up again. That's really fertile ground to explore a lot of these ideas. That is something where you could explore ideas of loss. You know, mm-hmm. this king once ruled this area was clearly very wealthy and now his body has literally disintegrated and and his name is completely lost to history yeah, they're not even, they're not even sure which king it is they think it's redwald but they're not sure yeah so you've got that and then you've got this class system that's kind of you know post-world war ii it's already taken a bit of a beating and post-world war ii it's going to take even more of one you've got the fact that edith lives in a manner very similar to how people would have lived during the edwardian era but that's long since passed and like having her maid vanish i mean the the servants are vanishing she you know you're the idea that you could be of a class where this is just the norm maybe that's going away the war's going to bring in rationing that's going to have impacts the war's going to change the globe so it's a lot of things are passing away and they're dealing with a grave i think the author was trying to like draw some parallels here and then bringing in spiritualism you know the idea that yes you may be gone but you leave something behind whether it be a spirit that can contact the living or your archaeological remains but or your legacy so they could have done something with that too like that's why it mattered to basil so much that his name be part of it right that he was given you know recognition and stuff but 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 again they're they're not none of that's developed i yeah i I had to just put all that together because it's not tied together in the book at all no i was so disappointed in this book i was like they took something that is fundamentally interesting and wrote the most boring hackneyed book about it (laughs) i just like and that's the thing i i would i'm not an archaeologist and i i like some history and i like some archaeology stuff you know cool cool but it's not like a passion of me you like roman archaeology not real archaeology i like mike duncan let's just lay it out there (laughs) but okay but even i was like oh this is an interesting idea concept time in history blah 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 i'm interested to read a book about it and then i'm reading this book and i'm like oh my god i don't care and the way that they're describing the ship it was hard okay maybe as an archaeologist because you are very familiar i know you said that you could see it and it made sense to you i'm not and it it was hard to picture what they were doing and i thought you know what sometimes you're reading a book and like at the beginning there's like a picture or a map or even like a diagram freaking at the beginning of project hail mary there's a like an outline of the spaceship andy weir gives such an amazing detailed that i never felt like i needed to flip to the beginning of that book and look at that diagram of that spaceship but this book i was like over here with my pen and my paper trying to like figure out what anything looked like i had to look it up online because 
I couldn't picture it. And this book would have, there are photos. There very easily could have been a diagram or a picture or a something that would have connected and made it, made you feel at least a little bit more drawn into this, to what was going on. Yeah. One thing I'll say though, that the author did do well. And again, because I have the job I have, this didn't grab me the way that I think it might a lot of people. But if you want to have an understanding of what doing archaeological field work is like, this book can give that to you. At one point, for example, they're describing, you know, going into a trench and smelling the soil all around you. And that's a very real thing. Every time I'm in an excavation unit, I smell it and it's it's a fairly encompassing smell. They talked about digging trenches at angles to each other to try to get an idea of what was within the one of the mounds. And while that's not as common a practice today, it still happens under certain circumstances, but we tend not to excavate in that way very often today. That is something that was done not just in England, but uh, here in California, there's the shell mounds of the San Francisco Bay. They were excavated in a very similar fashion. So if you are curious about what archaeological fieldwork is like, even though what they're telling you is a you know, 1930s version of it, it gives you a good feel for what it still feels like to do the work today. And that, you know, I think could be very cool for a reader. Yes. I just feel like this should have either been a nonfiction book that was more cut and dried and like facts and, you know, or it should have gone all the way of being fictionalized and been written much more like an actual novel with maybe one or two people's points of view. And, and, and that's, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and having some actual themes. There are a few things, though, that they're not accurate to actual history, but they ring true to a large degree to me, which I found interesting in the book. One thing that uh, struck me, for example, was that when Phillips shows up, he's immediately dismissive of Basil. And he kind of treats Basil as the sort of lower class, not just in terms of social class, but like, you know, he can't do quality work. I do cultural resources management archaeology. And... That means, like the vast majority of archaeologists, I don't work for a museum. I don't work in a university. I now work for a utility company, and I do their archaeological compliance work. But prior to that, I worked as a contractor, much like Basil. And I would go from project to project doing what was needed in order to help my clients be in compliance with historic preservation laws. I did a lot of excavation. I got very good at excavation, as anybody who does a lot of it will. And it, it, it hit close to home when I saw this guy from a museum. Actually, the real Phillips was from a university, but he was talking down to Basil and dismissing Basil. It's like, yeah, this is what I get frequently from academic archaeologists who work for universities is this notion that, well, you're a CRM archaeologist. Everything you do is low quality archaeology. You are so destructive. It's like, no, you idiots. A trained archaeologist who does this a lot is going to be less destructive on a site than some 18-year-old that you handed a trowel to and are trying to teach, which is how most academic archaeology is done. So I could feel where Basil was coming from there, even though in reality, the real Basil was actually respected by Phillips. You know, it, the novel Basil's like, yeah, dude, I got gotcha. you. I know what that's like. <laughs> Yeah. 
so they they definitely in the novel wanted to play up the turf war and the territorial aspect of the conflict between Basil and the people who were helping him versus the quote unquote real serious experts. And I thought that that was fine as a novel because it, it creates tension and there you know if there's no tension mm-hmm. then there's there's no tension. Uh, so that's cool i mean that was uh, that was okay and again if it had been better developed we could have had something to say about class mm-hmm. since it wasn't developed it did feel a little weird because because we weren't completely in bat okay so we're on we get basil's point of view and we get edith's point of view and then we get peggy's point of view but we don't ever get philip's point of view and philip's was this novel's version of an antagonist. He was the only one who was kind of working against what Basil and Edith, who, you know, we sympathize with because their points of view are where we've been in. Um, he's the only one working against them, right? At cross purposes. We never get his point of view, though. The closest thing we get is somebody else from the establishment, which is Peggy, but she is not the old school establishment. She's very young and a woman and all of those things. Okay, so she has actually a lot in common with Basil in that she's also looked down upon a little bit by these guys. And I don't think that that was historically accurate either. No, not uh, at all. No. So in fact, <laughs> I mean, and we're, okay, we're about to transition into the historical inaccuracies here. But the book did create that kind of drama. And I think that that's one of the only creations that I thought kind of worked yeah. because it was very believable and it did give you something to like care about a little bit because you're, you're, you're thinking, oh, okay, who's going to win it in this little tug stakes. of war? Yes. Stakes. Thank you. That yeah. was it. Because without it, it'd be like they went out, they found this thing, people came, they helped find it, they picked it up. They're like cool beans. And then they all went home. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree. There's a lot of potential themes in the book. Um, you've got the idea of, you know, this old order that's about to pass away because of World War II. You've got the idea that, you know, people die and the question of what they leave behind and can it communicate with us, which seems to be kind of indicated by both the archaeological site and the spiritualist encounters. But again, it just doesn't go anywhere. You, you made the comment about how is this going to be a ghost story? And I immediately thought, you know, this would have been an amazing story if it had been written by a Latin American writer because they would have dug into the magical realism and developed these ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And you could have had the haunting of the mounds and you could have had the idea where the big empty rooms in the house that aren't being used because, like you said before, it's not the Edwardian time anymore you know we don't mm-hmm. need a full house we don't have a full house full of servants and all these things so as that is shrinking and now we have these ca- cavernous rooms that are left empty that almost you know could be almost tomb-like in and of themselves you, you know contrast that with the collapsed burial chamber see Seriously. we should rewrite this book <laughs> apparently <laughs> and like the furniture covered in shrouds you know what i mean the lost and forgotten pieces and what do you leave in a room that you may or may not ever go back into and like what's going to be found later. And like Robert, the child could have like gone into because the children are naturally curious and found some tchotchke or doodad, you know, and brought it to her. Oh, this was from this, you know, time before. So many things that could have happened. So Kalia, I'm just going to point out, Mm -hmm. you can't copyright actual history. (laughs) You could totally write a novel that basically tells the same story but actually develops all of these ideas. Mm. 
somebody should do that. And then they could decide if they're going to be wholly historically accurate or wholly not historically inaccurate. Mm. And and we are definitely going to talk about the movie, which took even more liberties. But there are some definite liberties that in the book that then continued on into the movie. So I, we've already talked a little bit about how Basil was actually a respected member of this community, archaeological right. community. And, and uh, not just that, the guy you know looked him up today. He made contributions to astronomy that were pretty well respected. He was he was uh, working class. He didn't have much money. That was accurate. But the idea that people just blew him off because of that, it clearly wasn't. He was known for making contributions to a number of different fields. Yes. And we have the historical inaccuracy of Peggy also. In the book, she's newly married to her professor. They're on their honeymoon and she's called in primarily because she is a woman and small. All four of those things are not accurate. No. So she was married. But he, they met in school. They were fellow students. They were within a couple years in, of each other in age. Mm-hmm. She was called in to work because she was respected in the field. And they had already been married for a number of years. So they yeah. weren't it, on a honeymoon. It's just... It's not simply that she was respected in the field. She had written a number of papers that had gotten a lot of attention because of the quality of her work. She was a known quantity and she was known to be high quality. Yeah. So why are we diminishing her and putting her into this role of the young ingenue and then to put her in the bathtub? Okay, we 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 had different opinions about this bathtub scene and we we try so hard, listeners, it is hard to both of us we we shared the book okay so we have to like it moves around the house depending on who's reading it and then i finish it first and then i you know wait and he finishes it and we can't talk about it until now of course we we do by accident so i read the scene she's in the bathtub and this hotel and she forgets to lock the door and so she's lounging and i think even she's like putting her arms up she's kind of having a moment in the bathtub enjoying feeling clean and all this stuff this is before they go anywhere, do anything really. And her husband walks in and he looks so upset. He's like disgusted. He's angry at her. And he's like, you left the door unlocked. Some other man could have come in and seen you and blah, 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 blah. And then there's this distance between them. He is a little standoffish to her. Um, He's not overly demonstrative, you know, romantical and all of these things. Then during the dig, he goes off with the men and he goes back to the lab to work on things and leaves her. Okay, I and I will let you explain what you thought before we even saw the movie. I took this to be this is an old, lecherous, gross man who has like gotten this young girl, his student, and there's this creepy power dynamic. He's jealous, uh, you know, and obviously like controlling. He's a little bit territorial again. And and I thought, oh, this is the theme. This is about men staking their claim into a thing. You know, whose boat is it? Whose woman is it? How dare other people look at this woman or look at this boat or like excavate that doesn't belong to you, etc. Okay. But also like, how dare she be her own self, be her own sexual self, which probably might have been what drew him to her. But now he's like kind of had her, they're married. So now she's not longer as interesting as she was once before and is this a class thing is this a gender thing is this an age thing is this like the old ways turning into the new ways and like we all know what's going to happen in world war ii this man's going to go off and he may or may not come back and she's going to have to step into a different role okay matthew got a different reading 
of the subtext of their relationship. Hashtag Peggy is a beard. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here's the thing. It's not simply that he's upset with her when he uh, walks in on her in the bathtub, but he gets a look on her face, which she describes as being not quite discussed, but something similar throughout her section of the book. It mentions that she really wants him to kiss her, but he won't. She feels great comfort when he's holding her, but then he pushes her away. She says that throughout their, you know, very young marriage at this point, she feels like more distance keeps growing between them and it gets worse the more she tries to appeal to him. And I just keep thinking, this is a guy who's not into her. Why wouldn't he be into her? Maybe he's asexual. Maybe he's gay. Maybe it's something else. But he married her to cover something up. That See, is the reading that makes the most sense to me. And I, I totally think your reading of that is valid. I think my reading of it is also just as valid in that his disgust is that she was flaunting, that she was, you know, out there and and she there's an ownership aspect. And his pulling away is because, again, remember he in the book, he's so much older than her. He's of the generation where we don't show affection and, you know, we're 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 keeping it very buttoned up and understanding all of those things. And she is had based on the timing, right. Would have been born and growing up in the twenties, a little bit more of the free love bedrooms on wheels, like the whole thing. Right. And so if she came out of that generation, bedrooms on wheels for the listeners is a reference to how people described women being able to drive cars. Yes. Yes. That's true. I guess not everybody knows that. Um, so I, I definitely saw it as an age gender issue as well as a control issue. And again, that power dynamic of him being her teacher, that it so clearly felt like that to me. Okay. The people who read the book and decided to make this into a movie, obviously went, went with Matthew's read of it, which is awesome. And we will talk about that when we talk more about the movie. But again, totally historically inaccurate <laughs> all well, that. One, one thing i'll say though and i think the reason why it never occurred to me that it was you know well now he's got her and he's you know the older generation kind of pushing her away i have known professors who married their students i've known a few professors who married multiple students of theirs not all at the same time i don't know any you know academic polyamorous compound anywhere but I have never seen them pull away that quickly in that way. You know, it was always something where they seemed to be perfectly happy, at least for a time. So that I think is part of the reason why I have a hard time seeing that as an explanation is because I've seen essentially what we're told happened in the book play out in reality enough times that it's like, yeah, no, these guys tend to be okay with that. Yeah, no, and your experience is valid and your experience is yours and your read is valid too. I'm not trying to talk you out of it, but I have definitely seen enough couples where once you've bed her, you know, you've got that conquest, then yeah, it's cool that you still have her and arm candy's great, but you're now looking. You're, the, the eye has moved on and we are trying to find the next conquest. So that's definitely how I read it as well. Well, I think that this comes back down to it's kind of a half-baked theme yes the fact that i think both of our reads on it are a thousand percent plausible that to me means that this author did not do a very good job of conveying whatever they were actually trying to convey but 
there you go. One thing that was um, interesting, though, is I found one source and it was an interview with the screenwriter for the film who said that they didn't get divorced, but they had their marriage annulled after 15 or 16 years due to a lack of consummation. Now, everything else I found said they got divorced. Yeah. Everything. So I'm, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure that I believe that. That said, you know, I don't know. If they looked into the records, they would know better than I would. I don't know. I think that that is somebody trying real hard or like maybe that was supposed to be an idea in the book that then the screenwriter decided to, you know, run with. I also saw something on the internet today that was like, was Peggy a real person? No one really knows. Maybe she wasn't a real person at all. And I was she, like, she was not only a real person. She's got a publication history that most academics would envy. Yes. I'm just saying she, very it, well documented, real it was person, literally on the, in the middle of a list of like fat, you know, truth and fact about this book and movie, whatever. And it's going through all the differences. And then there was literally, a paragraph that was like maybe she wasn't a real person after all i was like what the fuck so like read at your own <laughs> risk it's not just that peggy had a publication history that most academics would drool over by the time she was taking part in the sutton who excavation that's you know detailed in this book she already had a good chunk of that publication history oh you know speaking of historical inaccuracies you came across a person in this book who wasn't real yes Nephew slash cousin Rory. Totally not real. He did not exist. He was created for the book because apparently we needed to have another man in this book. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Somebody it's, for Peggy to, you to know, have a realize how how frustrated she was. I yes. And that is so that is so frustrating to me. And what adds insult to this injury of this creation of the Rory characters is that he's credited as taking these photographs like so not only he's there to to be peggy's you know romance but also he's given a very important historical job he took the photographs these are important photographs they they chronicle this very important dig no actually no you know who took those photographs two women mercy lack and barbara wagstaff women two women they produced the first color photographs of an archaeological excavation in England. They made history. They are historically important women. But we took them out of this book and we inserted a random man who can be the romantic hero for Peggy. I cannot even tell you how mad I was when I read today. <laughs> I know how mad you were. Yes. <laughs> Thankfully, he he already asked me and I got I I yelled it. Um and so I am I'm I would have broken our our little microphones here and none of it would have been hearable by our audience. So it's good that I got it out of my system, the yelling. But oh my god. Oh my god. I the unforgivable sin of this book. I <laughs> I just you know, something else just occurred to me that I think is another place where the book it's um, themes are a bit half-baked. We're clearly pitched to dislike Phillips because he comes in and essentially replaces Basil. And we're kind of, it's implied that he replaces Basil for no reason other than that. He's higher class, yeah, higher social class, and therefore clearly more appropriate for the job. Whereas Basil was a good salt of the earth guy who was getting it done. But when 
Phillips takes over and brings Stuart and Peggy in, the first thing they do is lay out an excavation grid, which is the first thing you do. Reading through this book, I'm just assuming, because they're getting enough details about how field work works, that I'm assuming Basil laid one out. And then they say that he didn't. So it's sort of this, okay, I get that we're supposed to dislike these people. On the other hand, they did come in and do the basic first step, <laughs> you know, that every archaeologist would do. So again, the, the themes just end up half-baked and the I think the author might have been trying to go for some, you know, ethical ambiguity and some complexity, but instead it just became a muddy mess. So I wasn't enamored with the book. Finished the book and I was like, well, the movie has got to be better than this book, right? It just has to be. Sometimes I'm wrong. I'm not admit for <laughs> I, I'll admit it when it happens. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people really liked this movie. It won some awards. It got a lot of good reviews. And I'm not sure if we were just watching different movies or if I I'm not sure. Okay, but but here we go. This is the review that I, I liked a lot. It was from the AV Club. It said it's a B minus, so it's not like a, a bad review, but it says for all the film's sweeping romantic ideas, the actual experience of watching the dig is a lot like sitting at a bus stop. And I was like, yup, that, yeah, you kept waiting for it to to happen or something, to, you know, things to, to keep going. While we were watching it, you said you felt like you're watching the trailer of this movie and it was just like a very right. long trailer. I have to agree. It's it's one thing to be slow it's another thing to be plotting. And this movie was was slow and plotting. And again, it's inherently interesting. And then they, they added stuff to make it what you would think on paper is more interesting because they added the fact that Edith is about to die. They added way more of Robert, the child, like having a good relationship with Basil. They added more 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 contextual stuff about like the the time and the war the looming war that was definitely which that worked in the movie excellent it was its own character practically they added a freaking plane crash which we will talk about but like on paper that's exciting okay they added a lot of stuff and then they added not just rory and peggy having a flirtation and a moment of connection they like full-on had a romance and had sex outside and she very clearly left her husband yes yeah they, they, the, 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 like and they added that and her husband was, was also very clearly gay so gay yeah. super gay so they added gayness they added this, this this marriage going apart they add all of these things got added and on paper the bullet points of that you're like well damn that's a movie i want to watch but you know what else they added fucking weird ass editing where you would have <laughs> yeah. people talking and like the audio of the of the of the conversation would continue while other stuff was happening, and sometimes it was the people who were having the conversation but doing other things, and sometimes it was somebody else in a different place altogether. So it's like at the same time as these two people are having this conversation, somebody's across town sitting in a dark room. But and but normally when you do stuff like that, it's because they're hearing the the words or they're thinking about the words or there's something. There's this cave in part. Okay, that where the the trench caves in, and this which actually, is why OSHA requires you to shore walls when you've dug deeper than four feet. And actually, there was no cave in in the in the excavation of Sutton Hoo. So like they they added that in to the book, and then it got added into the movie too. That but it is dramatic, okay, and it and it was well done. The the actual cave in, and like everybody came running, and they're like digging and trying to dig him out and stuff. Okay, but then they keep editing it, so like we had him being carried 
and then they have him trying like them getting him out of the hole and then they're carrying him and then they're doing their like the version of cpr or whatever they're trying to do and then they're it looked like they were moving him around the field while trying to resuscitate him And, and that was something that happened a few times in the film where they would intercut two separate scenes together like to show a contrast between them i guess but there was nothing in the scenes that really contrasted in a way that made sense. Yeah. Here's what I think was going what they were trying to do. And I'll say, I think I disagree with you on the pacing. I think the pacing of the film was fine. I didn't feel like it was slow or plotting. I actually, I liked the fact that it was kind of a calm, relaxed pace. I genuinely enjoyed that. It was nine o'clock at night and I was real ready for it to be over. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. But it seemed to me like, they're digging up the site. Time is collapsed at this site because that's this thing from over a thousand years ago. And yet we can look at it now and figure it out. And time's about to collapse because we're about to go into the war, which will make the world a completely different place. So what I think they're trying to do is in this in-between place where the story of the film is taking place is they're trying to collapse time with editing scenes to intercut in that way with having dialogue placed over scenes. So sometimes the people are talking and sometimes the dialogue is playing over other people altogether or playing over the people who are having the conversation, but at a point where they're not talking. And I think that they were trying to kind of do this whole thing of collapsing time as it would collapse in an archaeological site, which I'm just going to say would work better if the archaeological site was in the Mojave desert where you have very little strata because the wind blows all the soil away. But that's another matter. But the problem is that it generally didn't work. There were moments that I thought were brilliant. There's uh, one point where Mrs. Pretty is seeing her doctor rather than going to London to see the spiritualist, as in the novel, she goes to London for medical appointments. And so she's seeing the doctor and you see her getting dressed after the appointment. And then and the camera's panning down. So you see her walk out the doorway. The camera pans out from the window where she's right. getting dressed and then the window is still in frame and then she leaves from a door that's at the bottom of the of the frame. And, and she's been notified at, at, during this appointment that basically her time's really limited. She's probably going to die soon. That worked really well because it gave you the sense of collapsed time that the time didn't matter because of what she had just learned. That was great, but the got it right in that scene and in none of the others yeah i mean i'll give you the pacing maybe i was just tired but it kept trying so hard to do a bunch of different things that it didn't do any one thing well i felt like i i would uh tend to agree yeah because there were things in the movie i genuinely liked i see why a lot of people liked this movie Ultimately, I was left feeling like it was wasted potential because they had all the right ingredients. They had a fantastic cast. You did a great job. Agreed. Cinematography was consistently gorgeous. They clearly knew some good editing tricks. They just overused them. Yeah. It could have been a really great movie, and it wasn't. And I want to say something about the casting. So in the book and in real life, Edith Pretty was old she was like in her 50s she yeah, was mid 50s she was an old lady and she is played 
by Carrie Mulligan, who's in her mid thirties in the mm-hmm. in the movie, and so that is that is a big disconnect because Basil's so much older than her when he was actually very close to her age. He was actually a little bit younger, younger than her in reality. Yeah, in reality, but she was older, like substantially older. And I read that actually um, Nicole Kidman was supposed to originally play pretty because she's she's in her fifties. And mm-hmm. I thought Nicole Kidman would have done an amazing job as well. I no no you know negativity to Carrie Mulligan who did an amazing. She did a job. great job. But I I the casting was was odd to me. Another mm-hmm. weird age casting thing. Ken Slot played Charles Phillips, mm-hmm. and Charles Phillips at the time of this you know the dig was in his thirties, but he's played by Ken Slot who's in his sixties. So we have like this older man versus who was supposed to be a younger person and i i thought Mm -hmm. that would have changed the dynamic too because you would have again had this young guy coming in and telling basil no no i i got it we're gonna do it thanks for your work now shuffle off man which again if your theme is you know classism having a young know-nothing come in and start Mm -hmm. telling the older experienced guy what to do hits that theme home in a way that having an older man who has actually been around this for years. Yeah. You know? I mean, and again, no, no harshing on Ken slot. He did great, Yeah, but that's an interest. I mean, and that's a casting choice. They decided to do that. That was a choice that they made. And I just go, okay. Yeah. You know, one of the things I remember talking to you about years ago, it was the ethics of writing fiction about real people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm going to say I'm totally good with people writing fiction about major historical figures, especially political leaders, for the simple reason that, you know what, if you knowingly put yourself into that position, you're asking for it. But Basil Brown, he's just some guy. Peggy Pagotti, she's an important archaeologist, but she's basically just a normal person going about her life. Also, she's the aunt of the author of the book, which makes this whole thing even weirder. Yeah. So he's writing this bizarre, at times bordering on our erotic fan fiction about real people, and his aunt is one of the people. It's just, it's it's so weird. Yeah. But it gets into this place where I'm much more conflicted about it when you start writing about just kind of normal people, not major public figures. And and I feel like in this case, it really does do a disservice to real people because the story that's told isn't the real story. And that, that in of itself is not a problem, but it is about real people. And he doesn't try to fictionalize it by saying, oh, it's the button Sue excavation (laughs) with you know these you know mrs ugly (laughs) right if he had done that that would have been a different thing because it's like yeah okay we all know it's based on this then it would have been also he's telling us that this is not going to be historically accurate it would have been inspired by true events instead of based on true events and i feel like that is a big distinction i i do feel really squishy and weird and and i don't like it when when people do basically fan fiction about real people i think that it is kind of tasteless i just do that's that's a thing that i do and and so the guy the actor flynn who played rory was asked about like you're playing someone who didn't exist like how do you what is that how do you feel about that and his response shakespeare (laughs) took a lot of licenses in macbeth hamlet 
and etc. is a story in the end. And when you have to make stories work in the span of several months, you have to conflate people and events and characters and try to translate that for people. And I'm like, my dude, <laughs> first of all, nobody associated with this is Shakespeare. And also, no, <laughs> like, you can tell a good story without creating a new character out of whole cloth especially well, when there's a good story already there and i'm sorry but women taking those photographs and being the first photographs in color of excavation sites in england is a good thing and to, to cut that out so that we could have a romantic created thing is just and i it's unforgivable i so no it's well, bad and here's the thing. I don't have a problem with people creating composite characters when they write something that's based on actual events. In fact, in some ways, because you get into this weird area where you're writing fiction about real people, I think that that can actually be a good thing to do. But you could have a composite character who actually embodies something about what was really going on there. So you have a woman taking the photos and that's considered a bit of an oddity that you've got a woman out in the field taking the photos. Okay, it's not the two women, may not even be named after the real people, but at least you're getting this right. thing that actually happened. You know, the spirit of it is there in the story. And hey, you want to make a good movie? Let Peggy fall in love with her. Let her be the gay one. Leave Stuart out of this because that's a big ass inaccuracy at nothing I could find online has anything about him actually being gay. Yeah. That is seems to be completely created out of whole cloth. Talk about and now I don't think it's a bad thing to be gay, obviously. I'm like pro queer over here, but it's not cool to decide that you're gonna tell a bunch of people watching a movie that this real life person was gay when they have no way to recourse. You have no idea how they'd feel about that, how their family would feel about that. I that I'm very uncomfortable. Well, it's a bit like, you know, when you have historical characters who we know actually were gay or were bisexual or, you know, in some other way, we're not straight, but we have to make them straight for this story. Yeah. I see it as being a very similar sort of thing. Exactly. It's problematic both directions. And yeah. I, I don't, I don't like it. So if you want to add in some queerness to like make it all, you know, fancy pants, new and fangled and, you know, get that target audience in, make the photographer a woman so that that stays closer to the historical accuracies and make Peggy the one who falls in love with her. So I'm, I'm just going to say... I'm seriously going to rewrite this stupid thing because I'm so mad. There are probably some listeners who are simply looking for information on the film or book, The Dig, and found this podcast episode because of that. So if you're thinking, oh, this is a couple of straight people who are trying to, you know, uh, give like the, but I have black friends kind of thing towards the fact that they made this character gay, but they're really uncomfortable with them being gay. This is the first time in the 15 years I have known Kalia that she has not said that making a character gay was not an improvement. She <laughs> always prefers that you make a character gay or I do mean... something of that sort. She just... also always prefers that you add a sex scene. So this is the only time <laughs> I've heard her actually say that those two things were not good moves. It, it, they just made the wrong person gay. If they had made Peggy gay, I would have been here for it. Yes. As you a queer... it was more relatable to you. I was going to say, as a queer lady, <laughs> super into that. 
but yeah, I mm, no, I uh, okay. Yeah, I just I felt like I had to, uh, you know, <laughs> to go to go to our archaics. I had to defend your honor here and point out that uh, this is a case where you have an LGBT person saying they shouldn't have made that person gay. And yeah. there's and also, actually a reason. <laughs> yes. Yes. Representation is is good. But I but I think that in this case, it it was flawed. And I don't know their reasoning and I don't think they had any reasoning. And that that makes me mad because I think it needs to be intentional. It, it, no, you know what it is? It is cheap. It is cheap and lazy writing. You're like, we have to have a romance so that people will care and so that people will keep watching because the first half of this movie is Basil and Edith. And they're like, they almost have a romance too, which was also not accurate mm -hmm. at all. But he's married and she's about to die and we don't want to make it that kind of movie. So they're going to be all very prim and proper. But we got to have some kind of sex in here to get things to sell. So Peggy's young. We'll make her have a, a romantic lead. Okay, so we'll add in Rory. Okay, we got him. They're going to be romantic. But we can't have her be a cheater because then she'd be an unlikable woman. She's got to be. We have to, you know, maiden Madonna, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so how are we? Hmm. I know. Let's make her husband gay. Then it's totally cool. We're on her side. And, and in it fact, makes she gives sense. him her blessing to go forward with what he really oh, wants in yes, life. Yes. yes, she does. She's such a wonderful character. <laughs> and we, we didn't really talk about this, but it's a little tiny thing. The actual excavation took two years. It was two seasons of digging. Mm -hmm. But they compress that. That is a change that I'm a thousand percent okay with because yeah. a lot of times, you know, we have to shrink things down, make things fit. It, it works for the narrative, especially with the looming war and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. So that was a fine change. Actual archaeology takes a lot of time. And if you're not the one doing it, it is like watching paint dry to watch it. So that's totally fine. Also, they excavated a... Um, much larger number of mounds in reality mm -hmm. in both the book and the film it's two of them in reality i think it was four yeah and there's actually a really cool map i found online that has oh, a i found it too yeah all the pictures of all the mounds and the little lines you know indicating which ones were excavated and stuff and we'll put those on the blog post for this episode uh, you know another thing that was again it was something that they were inserting i think for drama but it's not true is they kept talking about how this grave completely radically changed the way that people viewed the anglo-saxon culture and it, it did have an impact on the way that people viewed the anglo-saxon culture it is a very important archaeological site for interpretation of what the Anglo-Saxons were like, especially their elites. But in the book, they treat it as, and the film even more so. In fact, in the film, there's even a thing about, oh, we thought these people were savages who could barely make a club, but this shows they had art and poetry and song. No, everybody always knew they had art and poetry and song and made jewelry. That was not a mystery. See, that is one of those things that I totally did not bump on because I don't know enough about the historical... Uh, time period of the anglo-saxons and, and british history i was like that's so cool they thought it was the dark ages and now they know that these people were actually you know culture and their money and stuff that's that's amazing but now you're telling me that no people already kind of knew that yeah people didn't know for example that their trade routes were as large as they were. They suspected that they were pretty large. They knew that they extended at least to mainland Europe. So having a Merovingian coin, which um, Merovingian just means it comes from the court that belonged to Charlemagne, his family were the Merovingians. That was interesting, but they also, and they didn't talk about this in the um, film or the book, but they found stuff from Byzantium in the grave. 
So it just showed much larger uh, trade networks than were anticipated. But again, it wasn't a, this tells us that these people were so much more human than we thought. We thought of them as a little more than apes. Uh, No, they knew that these were people who had a level of social sophistication. I mean, they had a king. In order to have a king, you have to have a society that can support that sort of social stratification, which requires a range of social sophistication. So people knew a lot of this ahead of time. It, it, it wasn't quite the mystery that the film and book made it out to be. Well, speaking of added in drama, let's talk about the plane crash that happened in the movie. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> okay. First of all, a plane did actually crash in Sutton Hoo, but it was a B-17. It was a different type of plane, and it actually happened during the war. Oh. Okay. So I guess in in terms of conflating and, like, you know, moving historical stuff around in the timeline to make it work for – fine. It wasn't in the book, and it didn't happen during the dig, but a plane did go down in that general area at some point. Okay. But what happens in the movie – is that they're out there and it and I'm pretty sure it like interrupts a like a kind of a tense conversation. I can't remember exactly. Yeah. And then this plane comes and they're like, oh God, there's another plane because planes have been kind of going over, you know, on and off. And this plane's real low. And then it like hits the trees and then it crashes and then there's like a river and then everyone's running and she's like, don't let anybody go into the water because it's too strong, the currents. And of course, Rory, our dashing romantic hero. I, I believe his actual name is Strapping Rory <laughs> it was running in and dives in and goes underwater at the pilots already dead in the plane and he pulls the body out and then we have our weird editing that happens and then everybody's sad but everybody and like I think the point here is to be like okay a couple things one Rory was about to go join the air force and then somebody in a plane dies which to me I'd be like maybe I don't join the air force <laughs> it seems like a sign but okay it is dangerous war is dangerous they're training people die even in training people are gonna die like it brings the war to them and like I said earlier the war was its own character in the movie and I thought they did a good job so I can kind of get behind it in that terms you know making the war seem very real it's one thing to be like pomp and circumstance and ooh, you know play the drums and play the bugle and put on your fancy uniform and I'm gonna go be a hero it's another thing to like see another soldier die before you've even gotten into your uniform so okay but then But then what the movie decided to do was take it the next step and be like, life is fleeting and we should all basically have sex whenever we can. And, you know, understand that life is fleeting and we're all going to die. So, like, you know, grab the moment, which is a good principle. And it's a nice thought. And it worked really well for Edith and her son. But it was used. Edith and her son did not have sex. No, 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 no. no. So that you know. What I'm saying is the idea that life is fleeting and that it's inherently sad that you are going to leave the people behind that you love was was a message we were getting in the movie with with Edith and her son. And this kind of brings into that. And she was like, I'm going to die. And you are the person who's going to take care of my son. And you're going off to war. All of that was fine and resonated. But what the movie did was it used this whole thing as a plot device to get Rory and Peggy to have sex. And I just, I found it cheap and dumb and I didn't like it. I will say it did lead to what I thought was actually one of the few good Rory Peggy scenes where they're sitting next to a campfire and he's just seen this airman die. He knows he's about to go off and become an airman. And he makes a comment to her about, 
you know, well, what would be left behind? And she starts pointing out, okay, well, this thing, you know, your wristwatch parts of that would preserve the, depending on the soil conditions, the leather in your shoes might preserve, you know, she kind of goes down the list and it ties in with a conversation that Basil and uh, Edith have later. You know, she's saying it doesn't matter what we do. We're all going to die. It's all futile. He's saying, no, look, we're digging up the site. This is somebody's burial. We're seeing their legacy and we're seeing it unfold in front of us. So it tied that in. Yeah, that was one of the few places where I thought that the themes actually kind of got well developed in the film. For sure. And that conversation did actually happen in the book without an unnecessary plane crash happening, right. too. But yes. You know, it's funny, though, is about a month before you and I met for the first time, mm-hmm. I was the archaeologist hired to go and dig up a World War II era plane crash, which was also a training flight out in the Monterey Bay area. And so I just kept thinking about that during that scene. <laughs> so on our very first date, listeners, he actually told me the story of being out there and excavating this World War II aeroplane that had gone down outside of Watsonville. And one of the stories that you told me was about that they had found a wedding ring. It oh, yeah. Was, it was still out there. And no, it wasn't it, a wedding ring. It was a class ring. A class ring. I'm sorry. But in my in my memory, it's a ring. You found a ring. There was actually a finger bone and a ring. And okay. So like that was, is, a, is an image that has, has definitely stayed with me. And so it's interesting that in this movie, they're talking about like what would still be here. And I thought instantly, well, Peggy's wedding ring. <laughs> Yeah, you actually said that at one point. And then later on, when it's all symbolic, she takes her ring off. And I can't even remember what she does. Does she just drop it somewhere? What does she do with her well, ring? Well, she, the... she was out by the estuary. That's right. Um, she dropped it in the water. So she dropped it in the water. Then Smeagol came along later. <laughs> yes, that's pretty much what happens when you drop rings into estuaries. So you heard it here first. By the way, after him telling me all of this on our first date, I was like, we have to have a second date because <laughs> it will always be interesting. And I was right. So uh, she had no idea how boring I actually am. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize how boring archaeology really was. No, just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, um, speaking of archaeology, I saw on Twitter and, you know, Twitter is like the pinnacle of uh, expert knowledge that the trowel they were using in the movie was the quote-unquote wrong trowel for the time period. Did you bump on the trowel? Did you notice anything about the trowel? This is probably only going to be interesting to like two people in your audience, but the standard trowel, the most common trowel used by archaeologists in the U.S. is made by a company called Marshalltown. And yes, I have a Marshalltown trowel. It's not because it's a prestige thing. It's just they actually make really good trowels. But I've never had a tight relationship with my trowel i know archaeologists who if they lose their trowel it's it's frightening if i lose my trowel i go to the hardware store and buy another one no i didn't catch that but i will say british archaeologists use a different brand of trowel because it's a british company i do not remember the name of it off the top of my head but yeah it may very well have been the wrong one but i'm not british so (laughs) i wouldn't know okay and marshall marshalltown is that marshalltown yeah that's the most common one that archaeologists use in the u.s Marshalltown, if you would like to support this podcast, <laughs> you just got some free advertising. The advertising that said Marshalltown's really good. And when I lose it, I just buy another one. Easy to replace. Marshalltown travels. There you go. All of them high quality. <laughs> one, one thing, and I don't know if this is regional or not, but when you talk to members of the public, they will always refer to archaeological excavation as a dig and this book is called the dig the film is called the dig 
British archaeologists might very well use that term in that way. I know that classical archaeologists do and Egyptologists do because I've had conversations with them. In the Western US where I work, archaeologists don't typically talk about going to a dig or working on the dig. We talk about going to the excavation or working on the excavation. So it's interesting. You can always tell whether or not somebody actually has a background in archaeology by that, by whether or not they use the term dig or excavation if you're in the uh, Western U.S. You know what I hear you say is the site a lot. Uh, well, if we're not digging, and this is the other thing, a lot of what archaeologists do is not digging. We do a lot. There's a lot of archaeological work that does not require you sticking anything in the ground and pulling dirt up. There's a lot of survey, there's site recording, there's rock art studies, all sorts of stuff that don't require digging. And so the majority of field work that I've done over the course of my life, and this is true of every archaeologist I personally know, has not been excavation. I've done a lot of excavation, but most of the field work has been pedestrian survey and recording of sites. So that's the reason why you've heard me talk about the site is because usually I'm not digging it up. I'm going out and recording it or doing something else. So one thing kind of coming back to the matter about Peggy only being out there because she's petite and can, you know, maneuver without damaging the site. A few years back, there was a really interesting discovery in South Africa at a uh, cave complex called Rising Star Caverns. And it was the remains of a uh, hominid called Homo naladi. And they found these in a position and with materials that seemed to indicate that they were intentionally buried. This is an early ancestor of humans. So it's, it's interesting that something that predates anatomically modern humans and Neanderthals, and we know that our own species and Neanderthals are a subspecies of the species we're part of. We know that we carry out burials that we think symbolically in that way, but there's a question about how far back in time that goes. And if the findings from this work stand, it'll turn out that it goes back millions of years. But what's interesting about that from the Peggy standpoint is that only women were able to go in and work on the site, which was in this cave, because there's this very narrow tunnel that you have to get through and none of the men who were on the project could fit through it. So they actually had to put a call out for petite women with experience in archaeology to come and work on the site. So it was kind of the, the flip of side of the coin. You know, Peggy's out there and she's only brought out because she's petite and can work without damaging it. Whereas on this one, the men wanted to go in, but physically couldn't. That is interesting. There, there were a few things that I thought were interesting in the uh, in the film. In the book, they talked about the excavation in a way that left me with the impression that they got the outline of the exterior walls of the boat, but didn't dig down into them and that they were digging down like in specific cube-shaped units to look for artifacts, which is not what actually happened. They were actually getting the entire um, outline of the boat, which had been replaced with sand. It, essentially, the boat had become fossilized. And if you look at the historic photos, that's very clearly what they did. So the film was accurate. The book, they might have been trying to convey that, but that's not how it came across. Again, I was a little lost in the book's description of what was going on. So... Your mileage will vary, apparently. Okay, so can I talk about the cast in my trivia? Sure. So I don't have any specific trivia except for this, but here's my here's my ca cast information here. 
Carrie Mulligan, I said, was Edith Petty. You might remember her. I remember her. She was Daisy in the 2013 Great Gatsby, which we covered on this show. Um, she was also Sally Sparrow in the Doctor Who episode Blink. So we've got Doctor Who trivia rather than Star Trek trivia this time around. Exactly. Ralph Fiennes, who probably doesn't need a lot of introduction as Basil Brown. His newest movie is The Menu. By the way, I want to I want to see it. He was also in Skyfall. He was Lord Voldemort in the Harry Potter movies, in case you didn't know. He's also in Quiz Show, etc. Lots of lots of acting credits to his name. So Harry Potter, there's another geek little tie in here. Lily James as Peggy was Mrs. DeWinter in the 2010 Rebecca, which we also covered on the show. So that's two, two previous pages in Popcorn Podcast episodes. Um, she was also more re- recently Lady Rose in Downton Abbey. So if she looks familiar, it's probably more from that because uh, Downton Abbey was a much bigger deal than that 2010 Rebecca. Well warranted. Johnny Flynn as Rory Lomax. I didn't recognize any of the stuff he's been in. So he's a hunky dude. I don't know what to tell you. Ben Chaplin as Stuart. He is in the show Letter for the King, which is a uh, fantasy show I'm watching right now with our daughter, which is kind of cool. But you might remember him. He was Basil, a different Basil, in the movie Dorian Gray from 2009, which we also covered on the show. (laughs) (laughs) So yay. Although now that I say that out loud, I think actually I recorded that episode and it was supposed to drop a year ago, and then uh, stuff happened, and it didn't. So I think it's actually sitting in the queue. So um, the picture of Dorian Gray and Dorian Gray coming to you at some point. So also, Lily James and Ben Chaplin, who play wife and husband, Peggy and Stuart here, had previously played daughter and father in the 2015 movie Cinderella. So, okay. okay, so the guy, pl- the woman playing the aunt of the guy who wrote the book and wrote some potentially squeaky things regarding his aunt is now playing the wife of the man who'd played her father in another movie. The layers of yeah. fuckery just keep getting deeper. Ken Slott, who is Charles Phillips, he was Balin in the three Hobbit movies, which I haven't seen because, good Lord, why are there three of them? But he was Balin, who I'm guessing was a dwarf, maybe? Yes, he was a okay. dwarf. <laughs> and for, for what it's worth, I'm pretty sure that the people who made the Hobbit movies are also wondering why there were three of them. Oh, no. I think they know why. Cha-ching, cha-ching, no, the, the, the studio knows why. I'm not oh. sure the filmmakers know why. <laughs> Fair. Let's see here. Archie Barnes, who was young Robert Pretty, played the role of Mitchell's son, in the Batman from 2022. You saw the Batman mm-hmm. in 2022. So whoever Mitchell's son was, was this Arch- Archie Barnes. And last go. but not least, Monica Dolan as Mae Brown. She's in Sierno, which is another movie I want to see. Um, she was in an episode of Black Mirror. She was four four episodes of Neil Gaiman's Likely Stories. And she was in Call the Midwife. So that's kind of it for my trivia. I mean, all the rest of the trivia was pretty much like what they got wrong and stuff. So (laughs) (laughs) So are you ready for some final thoughts? Sure. I feel like we have pretty much told people what we think about it, but I did write a sentence or two. So I my my opinion about the book is that you should skip it. It plods along. It tries to feel like a real journal with bits and bobs that but they never connect to anything else like we've already talked about. It makes something interesting into something boring. I don't need to say any more. I would skip this book. Don't bother. What about you? 
Um, I would say that if you're curious about the experience of working on an archaeological excavation, but you don't want to actually do it, reading the book, at least reading Basil's point of view chapters in the book, will give you that. Other than that, I, yeah, I, I'm with you. This is, if you're just curious about Sutton Who, there's a lot of material written for the general public on it that is more accurate that you can get easily just by going to Google. Okay. So there you go. Very niche, but if that's you, then here's a book for you. What about the movie, Matthew? What's, what's your thoughts on the movie? So I, I would agree with that uh, AV club analysis of B minus. I would say it was a competently made film with a fantastic cast and the cast did a great job. It's watchable, but you know, if your options are to watch this or watch another period drama, watch the other period drama. Yeah, I will. I'll say I should. I, I think you should skip this movie, too. <laughs> the acting is great. The editing was odd. I didn't like the pacing, but that could just be me. And it felt kind of pretentious. If you know anything about the poetical licenses they took to make it, then I feel like it would directly impact your ability to enjoy the movie. And I cannot get over the invention of a man for a romantic plot that takes away from the very real and important contributions of the women photographers. I just can't. And I don't want to. So don't try to talk me out of it, people. But here's the thing. Again, I think that there are better period dramas. I think there are better movies out there. And I'm, uh, yeah, I, it's fine. If it was on in the background, but I would, I'll never watch this movie again. I'm not going to yearn for it. And if it was on in the background, I think I would just end up tuning it out because like nothing happens and there's no excitement. And it's not like you're going to learn something new from rewatching it. There's no, nothing hidden here. You're going to pick up again. And we all know what happened. I know I skip, skip, skip. You, you know, in a way with some of the stuff, there's a few places where it's a little subtle. Like you do have the hints at a possible romance between Basil and Edith in the first half. And it, they're, they're definitely there, but yeah, that's they're there subtly. In that, in that very British understated sort right. of way. Yeah. But then by contrast, you get everything with Peggy where it's like, yeah, in case you weren't getting it, we're going to tell you really clearly. Yeah. And that actually would have benefited from some subtlety if they were bound and determined to stick with that storyline make it more subtle because that would have actually both been more true to the time period but also it would have allowed you to feel some sense of stakes as opposed to just sitting there thinking lady why are you married to this guy right and that was never explained like we it because in the movie they weren't on their honeymoon you're like you suddenly realized this like or or had things been wrong for a while like but you it was confused. It wasn't executed well. So that that's right. my thing about the whole movie. I just don't think it was executed well. And again, I think if you know anything about the reality of the Sutton Who dig finding and the people involved, I think that it would be really you'd be hard pressed to enjoy this film in the same way. So well, I'll say I think that if you're bored some evening and just want something low key to watch, or if I don't know if they I don't know if they'll ever show this on television since it was made for a streaming service. But if it's on television, and you're flipping through channels to come across it. Yeah, go ahead and watch it. I, I don't think you're going to be upset that you watched it. I don't think you'll be upset, but I do think you will fall asleep. I think it was a good movie but it wasn't the great movie that it clearly thought it was. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. That's our episode. Matthew, thank you so much for <laughs> reading this book and watching this movie with me. I appreciate your sacrifice of time, energy, and effort, brain cells. This is because I made you read The Exorcist, isn't it? 
I mean, it's not not because you made me read The Exorcist. But I pro- I think that the next book that we read together needs to be enjoyable by at least one of us. <laughs> so you'll be back in a couple months. I'm not sure what we'll be talking about, but you're part of our rotating co-host casting. So I look forward to reading <laughs> and talking to you again. And listeners, if you want to hear more of me talking about movies based on books with other people and there's a few episodes of matthew as well you can find out information at kmmamedia.com the pages and popcorn link is right there there's a back catalog of tons of episodes some supplementals all kinds of stuff and if you liked matthew's dulcet tones and you want to hear more more of him talking about different things folklore ghost stories urban legends, that kind of stuff. You can listen to him on the Ghost Thropology podcast, which you can also find at kmmamedia.com. Just click on the Ghost Thropology link right there. I, I will I will tell you, though, that on that podcast, I don't talk about archaeology. And uh, except for the episodes in which I'm uh, talking with you, Kalia, I am not nearly as sarcastic or bitchy. <laughs> I bring it out of him. Again, kmmamedia.com. And if you want to support either of the shows, we've got Patreons, we've got Buy Us a Coffee, but really leave us a rating and a review on wherever you listen and tell your friends. That's the best way. And if you want to follow us on social media, kmma underscore media is on Instagram. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I'm Lost Cat of Five Tales. I'm on Facebook. I'm Kaylee Metcalf. The show is on Facebook. Both shows are on Facebook. We're all over the place. I'm sure you can find us if you want to. And if you don't want to, that's fine too. Thanks for listening. We hope that you dug this episode.